What's up, everybody? We are back with another episode of the EX Performance Podcast. This is episode 16, a.k.a. the Great Pacing Debate. Uh, young blood, Jeremy Kane and myself are going to take size today and battle it out presidential debate style. Um, no, not, not quite that in-depth, but you know where this came from was uh, we've got a lot of athletes doing a lot of different things, and based on how we prescribe pacing to them, um, sometimes it can cause questions when someone sees a similar program with a different pacing format uh, or other people just don't understand the concept of pacing at all. And then more importantly, when we talk about uh, athlete-specific programming or athlete-centric programming, sometimes the pacing for one athlete would be the worst thing in the world for another athlete. So we're going to go down that list today, kind of like one of those college classes that I'm sure we all had to take where you had to pick a side and argue it whether you liked it or not. So uh, that's where we're going to start today. Um, pacing is one of the, the most highly debated things, I think, um, in the endurance world. That's where, you know, I've got a lot of time there and people will talk about, um, different methods of pacing, whether it's, you know, perception of effort, speed or wattage, like actual power output, uh, you know, heart rate, all these other things. And I think the concept boils down to, you should probably pace in some way, shape or form. But how you do that, specific to the athlete, specific to the goal, specific to the program, and, and time and place. It's key, I think, to uh, – first of all, it's good to be back. What has it been, a week and a half? We've been yeah, here? man, too long. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's important to note kind of heading into this, if you're listening, you're kind of deciding, you know, what works best for you. It's important to know your pace um, for each workout. Each workout's going to have a different pace, um, different time domain. Um, and that equals different um, effort levels. So I think the worst thing you can do if your goal is to pace in a workout here when we go through these topics is to think, oh, well, said person did this. So that means I need to do that. And that can create different stimuluses. That can create different adaptations mentally and physically. So um, just kind of keep that in mind and, and obviously hit us up later if you have questions regarding your pacing. But yeah, I'm excited. It's going to be fun. Yeah, so let's let's start with the backstory here. So for uh, you know those of you that don't know, we've got tons of athletes doing tons of different things. You know, literally all around the world, all across the military, all across the sporting uh, spectrum. And uh, one of Jeremy's athletes, um, very high caliber female tactical athlete, uh, getting ready to go for a tryout here soon. Um, she posted about you know a couple. I think it was like five mile intervals, five one mile yeah, intervals, and they were all like five yeah. Yeah, we did uh, a couple of them we did. So uh, building up her aerobic endurance um, with both running and rucking. So a while ago, we did five mile repeats. Um, and she was able to keep all of them 610, 618, 612. And then she dipped off and did like a 650. And when she was like, hey, I messed up my pacing and did it again. And then the next week we did rucking and she was holding 10 minute miles rucking with a pack. Um, so it's just kind of, I guess that's what it stemmed from, right? It's just the understanding that level of athlete and pacing. Yeah. And so that started a lot of questions on our end. And so when Jeremy and I were talking about, hey, podcast topics, this was one I just wanted to do. So we're going to go down our little flow of, of talking points. But, you know, for the audience to understand um, some stuff about pacing, you got to understand, like, we absolutely advocate for pacing of some sort in every workout. But for the you know way it shook out today, we, we, we kind of had a flip of a coin, paper, rock, scissors, whatever. Um, Jeremy's gonna be your pro pacing guy. I'm gonna be your, your cons of pacing guy and talk about both sides of the coin because you have to understand that. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people are like, hey, I'm gonna follow 
X pace in, you know, whatever sport or, or thing. And let's, let's stop right there. So we break our athletes down to like fitness, like just health and, and just longevity, sport for whatever sport they're getting into. And then our tactical athletes are, are different based on what they're getting ready to do. So that being said, like each of those people has a different pace, different time um, of the year and their programming has pacing protocols based on them. And so, you know, really, uh, that's what we do no matter what, but we're going to play both sides here, um, you know, just to, to keep it even. And so with that, I'm going to let Jeremy start off with, with the power of pacing. Yeah, so power of pacing. Uh, first, I think, I think it'd be kind of important to define what we mean by pacing. Um, and obviously, what we mean by pacing is creating a pace or rate of speed or rate of movement that you are doing in your workout and or lifting session um, in your said sport. So Chris had mentioned lifestyle, athlete, tactical, um, all those can incorporate some sort of pacing. It's not just always a CrossFit Metcon. Um, so with that said, I think the two things I would kind of want to focus on on the power of pacing is one, typically when we refer to pacing, it is sustainable. Um, sustainable training over time um, allows athletes to get a better understanding of what they are capable of. Um, typically, if you look at longer sessions, we start working on energy systems. Um, typically, sustainable means we're not over-accumulating lactate. Um, therefore, if we start building in progressions, let's say we're going for a tactical athlete who's building in miles on rucks, um, or a lifestyle athlete just kind of running through some movement patterns at an aerobic level, um, and a CrossFit athlete who needs to literally be better throughout the whole weekend um, and your war gaming kind of pacing into a workout. Um, it's important to know your pace because it means it's sustainable and you can apply more power later on. Second of all, from a coach's perspective, I think it creates repeatable data. So we know that if we give you an eight minute workout and you're pacing it properly, then next week, let's say we go to 10 minutes, 12 minutes, theoretically, we can control our volume intensity and sets and reps because we know exactly kind of what your pace is at that said workout. Um, where that gets important, I think, is in a training cycle. I think when we're starting to do like a build, um, if you've heard myself and Chris talk about that before, we build our athletes in kind of an off season and kind of get tons of volume underneath them. It's a very good way from a coach to create re uh, repeatable data that shows kind of what you're capable of and then i would say lastly if you take those two things of what sustainable is and what your data points are um, when it gets to your said competition you know what you're capable of and you're not guessing you're not burning up you're not going kind of too far on one end of the spectrum no solid solid so you know i get the the luxury of, of arguing the pitfalls <laughs> of pacing here right um and so i'll just start off with no jeremy that was stupid uh, I hate it. That's how the internet works, right? You just, you, you insult other people when you don't like their, their way of saying things. No, I, I actually agree with all that. You run for presidency. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> so basically, uh, you know, Jeremy just explained a lot of good things about pacing. Um, and, and like I said, I get the, the fun part of saying the pitfalls of pacing. And so, you know, kind of what I'll start off with is exactly what Jeremy said in terms of like, you know, your pace or your specific movements, you know, uh, it's very deliberate. It's very controlled. Unfortunately, life doesn't happen in, in very deliberate and controlled manners. So, you know, I think one of the downfalls of pacing could be that we get too specific, too rigid, too, um, 
you know, focus on a certain pace and a certain power output. You know, a lot of times my pacing is based on like peak wattage or critical power output, something like that that I'm looking for. Um, but we really, we, we would be lying to you if we said we understood everything physiologically that's going on when someone's doing a workout. We've got a pretty good idea. Um, but you know, as, as science changes and everything else changes, um, we have to change our methods too. So with pacing, I think it's very good to have, you know, guidelines and handrails, but some of the downfalls of pacing is the mental aspect. And I've got some athletes who are very, very, very deliberate about sets and reps and everything they do. And when something happens, even the temperature changes or weather or whatever, and they get outside their pacing parameters, it eats them up mentally. And so, you know, that's one of the considerations. And, and when I say pitfalls, it's all relative. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, yeah. but it's something as coaches we're concerned about, right? If I give someone a pacing prescription for rowing and they just knock it out of the park all day long, they crush it. Then they go back to running and they can't hold their paces because of accumulated, you know, fatigue, whether it's central or peripheral from what they've been doing earlier, then it's like, oh my God, I'm, I'm failing, I'm horrible. This whole thing is broken. So one of the pitfalls would be the mental aspect. The next piece is pacing in multimodal sports is difficult. So when I'm having someone do, you know, a CrossFit style workout, because that's the competition nature that they compete in and it pops up and we have maybe one or two times to test it and got to submit the scores. Um, my over pacers, as I will call them, uh, often leave a little bit in the tank and like, oh man, I should have done X, Y, and Z. So sometimes that pacing can hold them back and they don't have that sixth gear because we've taken it out of them. Yeah, I mean, uh, interesting because we talk about this kind of stuff all the time. I think it's the first time we're trying to play that we disagree. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, just kind of on those points, I think it's maybe another topic we get into on a different podcast or if you kind of want to expand today, but I think that's kind of the importance of having a coach, right? Because if you are working in a mixed modal sport, um, there is a way to make it paceable or aerobic, whatever. I mean, if you ever want to say it, but um, there's a way to make it paceable. It just takes really good program design and really kind of keying in on an athlete's limitations uh, because you're right. If it's done improperly in a mixed modal sport, there's no such thing as pacing. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, that kind of leads us into the, the pros and cons of pacing in training. So, you know, you went first on the last one. I'll kick it off on this one um, with cons of pacing in training. And so one of the, the downfalls that I just mentioned was the mental aspect. The other piece is people are so very day-to-day -day, um, with a lot of the training that we do with auto-regulated volume or intensity or some of those other things. We really put a lot on our athletes to say how they're feeling that day. And so, you know, I liken it to linear periodization with a barbell. If I'm giving someone, hey, you're doing five sets of five at 75% of your bench, well, that's kind of the coach setting those parameters. Someday, 75% is way too light. They've got way more in the tank and could do more and get a better training session. Flip that around. Other days, 75% might be burying them because they slept like shit. They're horrible at nutrition, whatever. And now they just, once again, try to reach an unobtainable goal. So in training, it can be this slippery slope of the coach doing their best guess or most educated guess at prescribing a pacing algorithm or a pacing uh, scheme, and it's just not there. Sometimes it's not off. So that's where in training, I think one of the cons can be unrealistic expectations or the athlete just doesn't have it that day, 
And then it's, it's a back to the drawing board of, you know, oh, did I overprescribe or underprescribe pacing goals? Or is it social issues, psychological issues, nutrition, sleep, whatever. Um, and so sometimes there can go, there can have some variance in there. So I will say with a lot of my pacing schemes, if it's not on a specific monostructural thing, like a rower, a skier or something like that, um, I do leave variance. So if I'm doing a mixed modal thing, say running, kettlebell swing and pull-ups, I may give bookends of pacing. Hey, I want each round to take two minutes plus or minus five seconds, because that's really about a 5% variance. So that gives them a little bit of human factor, but they're not tied to some pacing plan. So that's, you know, back to the original point, the con can be uh, in pacing and training, sometimes we get it wrong, or sometimes that person is just not feeling it that day, and they're tied to this number that's kind of arbitrary. So I'm gonna kick it to Jeremy for pros of pacing and training. Yeah, um, so pros of pacing, to training, um, I think one of the key things there to take away is just even kind of in the argument itself, right? It's training. Um, I think the difference between always training and always testing is what many athletes get confused. Um, I think athletes sometimes get hung up on the idea behind like every workout has to be this PR that they set or every workout has to be their fastest workout. Um, I don't know how many times I usually get like, oh, I don't really feel good about that workout. Like, I didn't think I went that fast. Like, typically when I'm writing workouts, I don't really care how fast you go because I'm building in program design that says you're doing this many pull-ups unbroken or this many um, ball balls unbroken at this run pace. So um, therefore, I think in a mental state, um, understanding that it's training and you're pacing and training is kind of a key takeaway. Um, secondly, I think that I, I, I was just actually looking for the number because I just forgot to write it down. Uh, when we kind of start talking about this, but it comes to recover, um, recovery ability between each um, session. Um, typically, you see a little bit harder time to recover if you have a really heavy glycolytic um, kind of hit on the system um, versus, you know, if we're staying a little bit more underneath our threshold, underneath kind of a controlled environment. When we think about pacing, we can then say over the span of a week, train five days where three of them are really hard um, and two other ones are still getting really solid work in, but you're not burning out the system. And when we talk about in our last podcast, how, you know, deloads are important and understanding that the body's going to fluctuate in different kind of times of the month or even um, your training cycle. Uh, I think pacing and training allows for a sustainable effort over a long training cycle and you're not going to spend all the time injured. Um, and when it comes to, if you get it right, let's say we use the example of like the run or the sets and reps, um, that you want to go unbroken. If you get it right, I think it could be a confidence boost. Um, personally for me, it's something I'm kind of going through in my training right now. I'm testing unbroken everything in workouts just to see what that looks like and what kind of pace and rest periods I need for that. Um, and I think oftentimes people, when they hear pacing, they think, Oh, I need to break it up into five reps or I need to break it up to three reps. And it's like different athletes have different ability levels to go pacing. And sometimes you have to trust your pacing and you have to learn to trust it by trust, by doing it in training. If you're never doing it in training, you're never practicing. No, I, I completely agree. You just changed my mind, Jeremy. I'm a, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a believer in pacing and training. No. You know, jumping back into to kind of coach hat, not just kicking sides here. You know, I think you hit on some very key things. And like with a beginner athlete, um, you know, early on, one of the first episodes we did was classifying athletes or athlete classifications. 
when we talk like a beginner athlete just oftentimes doesn't know what they're capable of. So a lot of times they don't know what truly hard effort means or they only know all gas, no brakes. So I think one of the benefits of pacing, and it may not be necessarily two minutes per 500 on a row or sets of five or whatever, it might be teaching them for that movement pattern at that weight, they can do X, Y, or Z, uh, you know, power output for a certain amount of time. Because a lot of times what pacing is doing is not necessarily teaching it's not necessarily like creating some physical adaptation. A lot of times it's teaching the athlete pacing internally, like throttle modulation. So like, Hey, I'm, I'm driving down the street and I'm just trying to make it to the stop sign. Well, I'm not going to floor it. And some athletes will do that same time. I'm not just going to idle all the way down there. And, and likewise, if I'm driving cross country, that's a different pace and different approach. And so a lot of times the reason we use pacing and training is to teach, um, teach yeah. them, Hey, I've got some athletes who are, will destroy an airdyne bike and and just destroy it crush it no big deal then as soon as they start running and they've got a lot more skeletal loading they got a bunch more going on biomechanically they shut down um and then same thing you get into certain movements some athletes have a stigma of gymnastics or whatever and they're pacing not necessarily like raw power output but just how they move and how many reps they can do before they start to redline is drastically different so that's one of the benefits and you hit it on the head like the athlete level and what they're doing dictates the pace. And as coaches, we can use that to say, hey, you nailed the training event this week, or you hit it so well, we're gonna up it next week and see if we can get you right at that threshold. Because it all comes down to progressive overload. And if we're slowly yeah. pushing the athlete's limiter each week, that's how we build over time. All right, so now we're switching it up. Pros and cons of pacing in competition. Your turn. Ooh, Your competition. Turn. All right, so um, this is a good one to kind of stem off of the um, pros of pacing and training. So I think if you are pacing in competition, you have to, uh, it's different from training because you have external factors. Um, whereas in training, if you think maybe you went really fast, like, oh, yeah, I went sub 10 on that workout, cool. Uh, but if you, what happens when you get into a competition and the person next to you jumps out way faster than you are, are you going to have the kind of, um, mental ability to check yourself and kind of say, Hey, I have my plan and I need to stick to it because it will end in a better result. Um, if you're out there listening and you kind of know our, um, EAX black team that goes down to Guadalupe every year. Um, this is something we talk to them about all the time, um, is kind of having a plan and then it quickly going out the window when everyone's trying to find an activity to do on the workout floor. <laughs> Uh, no, but so on a, on a more serious note, the, um, the pros in a competition setting are just that, that you know, your ability, you theoretically, you've done all the work leading up to your workout. Um, therefore nothing externally can truly affect what you're going to do to, let's say when the event, um, if it's a chipper style workout and the guy next to you or girl next to you blows it out of the water or you are a tech, um, tactical athlete and you step off on your 18, 20 mile ruck, and the first person runs a nine minute mile on the first mile. <laughs> like understanding your pacing um, is gonna be key. From a coach's perspective on that, um, I work to train my athletes to be comfortable in the domain in which they will work. So what do I mean by that? Um, typical, I think the average open workout is what, 12 minutes? Yeah, yeah. And so if you take the average 12 minute workout and open, 
Um, typically what I do is I use the method the kind of 25% rule is I want to get, I cut the time down by 25% and I get athletes very, very comfortable moving at that pace because that pace can translate over to the entire time domain. And so what does that look like? So if we have a 12 minute AMRAP of wall balls and toes, the bar and double unders, um, I'll do four minute intervals to get that pace down and it'll be repeatable and sustainable. Like I said, the power of pacing is, um, and let's say you're doing three, four, five of them. Now you're working 16 minutes at a really, really fast pace. When you get into that 12 minute workout, let's say magically I was a genius when I created the open workout. It was wall balls, toes, the bar and double unders. Now you have an understanding of what pace and tempo those workouts are going to be at, and you know what's sustainable for you. Um, and I think kind of blending the systems together of training, working into a competition where now we're testing workouts and you've been there before and you know how to handle the pressure, um, you'll be able to kind of stick to your game plan and come out with the result you want. Yeah, so uh, my, my job now is to disprove all that. No, but I, I think the, the counterpoint to it is, is competition is competition. And one of the biggest things we love about watching our athletes compete is on game day, letting them loose and letting them hopefully execute the game plan. But at the same time, like it's competition. So if someone jumps out in front, like knowing a, a relative pace for, you know, you on the rower or on the bike might help you say, okay, I'm right at my limit. I can go a little bit faster, but I know it's going to cost me something on my, you know, toes to bar, double unders, whatever's going to come next. Or I know if I go out kind of fast on this first part of the road march, I can maintain that later, but it's not the prescribed pace. And on game day, I think it's very powerful to have an athlete who is self-aware enough to start with a game plan, start with a pacing plan, but then be able to switch gears based on what the competition does. You know, say they start getting no reps, say they start you know, hitting it and they get that adrenaline rush and the barbell feels as light as it's ever felt. So an athlete who is aware enough, funny enough, they, they get that way through pacing and yeah. training, um, yeah. <laughs> is, is someone who can turn on that extra gear. And I've got a couple athletes I can think of right now who it's amazing to see. Because me as someone who's pretty analytical, you know, I'm watching everything. A lot of times I'm counting reps and reps per second mid-workout. I just can't shut it off. Well, those athletes who can and can go by feel and can say, yep, I'm going to do all 50 wall balls unbroken because that row didn't take as much out of me. I know we planned on 30, 20 or whatever, but I'm going to take it. A lot of times that's what the best ones can do. And you'll hear them talk about it later. I'm talking about the true pros in any given sport. They're like, Hey, I was feeling it. I was in the moment and I went for it. The downside of that though, is if you go for it and it goes bad. Um, yeah. So you got to be real careful with that. So, you know, I'd say the cons of pacing and competition are that you automatically predetermine limiters. And if you're saying, hey, I, I'm going to row a thousand calories an hour pace for whatever row, and, and then you see everyone else shooting out quick, and you kick it up to 1,200, and you've never been there before, and it starts, once again, eating at you mentally, or you start telling yourself, oh, I'm breaking the pacing plan, I'm going to fall apart later. You're kind of putting those limiters in place. The last thing is, in, in cons and comp, in competition pacing, is that we can't control some of the things that happen in competition. We can't control a, a machine that, that isn't the same. We can't control, you know, the, the, how the barbells roll, some other stuff rolls. So sometimes we go into a competition with a specific pace or a specific, uh, you know, idea in mind and little things like, oh yeah, I had to jump a foot and a half to the pull-up bar might break our pacing plan because we were just going to do quick yeah. singles or something like that. 
And so that's all the things where, once again, an aware athlete can switch gears in competition. But admittedly, they should probably do all their pacing work beforehand. So yeah. it's not just getting, yeah. figuring it out. Something I was going to be interested to kind of maybe hear you get at, and you kind of touched on it, is, um, you know, if it's the idea behind it. This whole pacing thing is that, you know, if, if we can go through a weekend of competing and you're always going to be prepared because you're only working at a sub-maximal level for a workout except for the last maybe minute and a half where you could push, right? Like, that would be ideal pacing. Is if you just get into a workout and everyone is faster than you. Like, like if you get into a workout and it's a five-minute workout and you planned for it to be a seven-minute workout, that just changed your entire strategy. Mm -hmm. um, and what you're kind of mentioning is, like, the good athletes can switch that. Right. The good athletes can maybe look at a chipper workout and say, hey, I got to control this row pace, and then I got to get out here and break it into three sets of wall balls and then do the toes to bar, blah, blah, blah. It's like the good athletes are going to be like, they're going to have to row in there and be like, holy shit, I need to go way faster <laughs> than what I thought. And I think a good example of that was if you look back at Dubai a couple of years ago when they did the acid bath. I remember a lot of athletes talking about that as a, a three, two, one go, they're on the rower and they're looking next to each other and everyone's rowing like 125. It's like if you thought that that was going to be a 145 phase workout, you are now in a different pacing strategy for the remainder of that four minute workout. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that what fast. makes competition fun though, is because those athletes turn it on. Cause, I mean, if, if it was just based on like pacing that you could hold in training on any given day, we'd know who's going to win the CrossFit games or we'd know, you know, who's going to win the Olympic time trials for whatever events that involve just pure pacing stuff. So that's what makes it fun on competition day. But you probably should know your paces so you can know when to go and when not to. Um, and know the cost that it's going to have if you exceed that. But that kind of leads us perfectly into our next thing, which is like the pros and cons of athlete prescribed pacing, or I'm sorry, athlete regulated pacing and coach prescribed pacing. So, you know, I'll kick this one off, um, kind of taking them both at once. So I think some of the downfalls of coach prescribed pacing is you're taking the athlete's vote out of it. Sometimes that's good, right? For a beginner athlete or even an intermediate athlete who don't know how to control themselves and don't know how to, you know, throttle regulate appropriately and they over tense for certain movements or they go way too hard when they're feeling good at the beginning of a workout, not knowing it's going to cost them at the end. Like those are all things that can go bad with athlete regulated pacing. But sometimes, and a lot of times for me, it's more of like, I'll say like strength and power endurance work. Sometimes I, I underestimate what they're capable of because I'm like, yeah, you know, we should probably play it safe. But just like that barbell work I was talking about, if I'm doing max effort work and I'm like, hey, you know, go up to 100% of your max today. And they're like, well, I'm feeling good. I could get a 10 pound PR easily. Then I just held them back. So I think that's mm -hmm. some of the, the, the value of an athlete who knows their own pace and the downfall of coach prescribed pacing. And I'll also say one more thing about that is, you know, coach prescribed pacing, there's levels to it. So the longer I've been with someone and the longer I know what they're capable of, the more specific I can get with pacing. And so I've got a lot of athletes who start out and they're, they're just on their first phase and they're like, hey, I've seen some stuff you did with this person or that person and you had it dialed into like plus or minus two seconds. And it's like, yeah, we've been working together four years. And I've done a lot of physiological yeah. testing. I've seen them in, you know, like say rowing and wall balls, probably a hundred different times, a hundred different data points. And I can know, yeah, they're about a, a 40 or 50 wall ball person and they need a break, but then they can go back to the rower and hold 1250 calories an hour, yada, yada, yada. As a newer athlete coming in, if I'm trying to coach prescribed pacing, it can get sketchy because, you know, what they do in, in a couple of testers 
doesn't really narrow down and refine the pacing tools that I want to use. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, you know, to kick it off, I think, you know, um, one of my points for um, coach developed uh, pacing strategies is that the athlete doesn't get a vote. Um, and what I mean by that is you kind of hit on a context of like, if they're feeling good, you know, like go for it. What I mean from the pro side is that um, typically, let's say we have our athlete map laid out. If you don't know what our athlete map is, when we reference it, we talked about it in the previous podcast. Um, but our athlete map is laid out. And a lot of times if there's a disconnect between the coach and the athlete, the coach has the idea of where the training needs to head for that said cycle, four or five weeks. Um, and if the athlete isn't getting a vote, then typically means that they're not really in tune with where they're at in the cycle if they're upset about it. Um, so that obviously takes a communication thing from the athlete and coach to fix that part. But typically, a coach should have a better understanding of where the athlete needs to be at said point in time. Additionally, I think um, when it comes to our athlete levels, oftentimes um, I look at it between two ways or three ways, right? So we have our beginner athletes. I think the beginner athletes need the pacing because they don't know, like you mentioned, they don't know how to go hard they, or they don't know how to go too hard or they don't know how to go. They don't know how to pace essentially. So you're giving them said prescribed weights on maybe they, I think people have this notion of like, Oh, I need to run faster. I need to row fast all the time. Um, when it's like, if I get a new beginner athlete and I'm just trying to build a good aerobic base with some mixed modal contractions, it's like, Hey, row at a 202 pace per 500 meter. Um, and it starts to kind of get their understanding of what that means. Um, and then I'm going to switch over to the opposite side of that expert or kind of advanced athlete, I think is kind of the easiest. Cause like you said, they have an understanding of what they need to do. Um, typically as a coach, I can uh, provide them really aggressive pacing that may push them further than what they are capable of. Oftentimes I think pacing, when people think pacing, they think easy. I've had really elite athletes like Trish, where if I have her doing mile interval repeats at a 550 pace, that is not easy, but that is paced. And I think there's a difference there. <laughs> like, like, like pace is not easy. It's just sustainable and at a certain, certain threshold in which you can occur. And sometimes it's above threshold if you can clear out lactate that fast. I think the toughest one is kind of the third category is intermediate because people are learning how to pace, but they're also constantly getting fitter by the month. And so their paces are constantly changing. Um, and I think that's where it's important to then think about the other side of that, where it's um, athlete-led pacing, where we're giving them optimal rest periods and they can express true power and understand what that feels like. Yeah, man. And I think, you know, what you kind of hit there on the end was key. I mean, so we talk about the biopsychosocial aspect of training. And so as their biology is changing, so is their psychology, right? They, they get more uh, they get used to, to working at a certain pace, a certain pain threshold, a certain breathing um, rate per minute, and they get just more comfortable in that arena. So that's where I was, you know, on my end with the cons of, of coach prescribed pacing is that sometimes that, that athlete is making a, a second or third wave adaptation and there it's more mental and skill based than it is like true physical adaptation. And that's where it's slippery, but, but talking with the athlete is key. The other thing I wanted to hit on in coach prescribed pacing, and this isn't so much coach prescribed pacing as it is like blog or template prescribed pacing for, you know, whatever athlete, say, say whatever tactical 
Instagram, you know, following is posting, hey, this ruck pace or this running pace on a recovery day. Well, you and I have gone into it in pretty good depth for a, for a delivery limited athlete, having them run at a quote unquote aerobic pace that someone else just arbitrarily dictates actually mm -hmm. makes them over tense and smokes them. Also on a recovery day, they're, they're doing blood flow restriction training because someone just randomly picked a pace <laughs> to do, you know, and that's where things like the individual aspect of, of coaching prescribed um, stuff comes in because we talked about it before. If I have a delivery limited athlete and I'm trying to get them to average a two minute pace per 500, then I may start them at a 210 for the first 100 meters, 205 for the next 100, and do gradual desaturation because they just naturally occlude. And so when we're looking at you know some of these blog programs that are out there and some of these other things that are are floating around, it's like okay, you're going to do you know for the CrossFit side, you're going to do X reps at X weight this many times well that in and of itself just became a pacing thing you know you may have someone do dt but they have to break it every three reps because of grip or because of something else so pacing sometimes from the coach's end isn't necessarily just how fast you're going or what pace you have on the rower sometimes it's the weight sometimes it's the movement selection sometimes it's other stuff that you know will let the athlete stay moving like a metronome and at the end of the day, that's what pacing is trying to be. It's, it's consistency in training, just like we, we can monitor like total load, you know, force times weight or force times distance over time is power output. Well, we can do that over a whole workout. And if we see these wavelets, that's kind of how humans work. But if they're very drastic, then we're, we're missing the training adaptation we're looking for. Now, competition, once again, sometimes it's good to have yeah. that sixth gear. And training, not so much. So you pulled out the big guns on that one. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that was the one you had. I was waiting um, for it too because that that is a good point. You know, if we are tracking power output um, and we mess up and we don't do it correctly, like over the span of a twenty minute workout, that that could be detrimental. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, getting into like the the positive and negative adaptations from pacing, like you know, I know you're covering a, a positive over here, but are, are the pros and cons, but. You know, I think some of the, the negative adaptations from, from training are exactly that, right? We may have a certain thing in mind. We give a quote-unquote dosage of exercise, and the adaptations aren't what we're looking for because our pacing prescription was off. Or flip that around, we're trying to give a certain dose, and because the athlete doesn't listen to pacing, they get it wrong by going too fast or too slow. So that's some of the, the negative adaptations from pacing. And what that turns into is if I'm trying to build someone's aerobic base and I'm saying, hey, I want you to do a 5K row, two minutes per 500 meters, hold that the whole time, should be pretty easy for a pretty fit person, but, but not a walk in the park because I'm trying to build capillary bed laydown. I'm trying to build mitochondrial density. I'm trying to get them to build their engine, quote unquote, that people like to say. Well, if I have a delivery limited athlete and now I'm just occluding their flow the whole time, I actually don't do that. I increase the way that they can process enzymes. I increase the way that, like their stroke volume and heart rate, but I don't necessarily change those other things because I'm getting more of a, a occlusion reaction, which is like a metabolic response, not necessarily a local nervous system or tissue change. So that could be the negative if I misprescribe pacing based on an athlete's limiter. 
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, kind of getting, I think the way I'll have to do it is just kind of assuming that the pacing is done perfectly um, in order to get the positive effect because um, that's truly what it is. Because if you do do it poorly, you'll get into the limiters that you had just mentioned about how you just kind of change the, um, the, the, the dose response that we're looking for. Um, so therefore, for me, you know, I've kind of mentioned before earlier on is that the, one of the biggest positives that it's sustainable and you can recover from typically a pacing session you can recover from, um, but also you can get into an adaptation what you want. And what I mean by that is if we're going for a 12 minute workout and I want you to get five rounds and you pace it properly and get five rounds, we accomplished our goal. If you go out too hot in the first or second round and maybe you only get four rounds and that wasn't part of our progressive overload when it comes to um, reps and intensity, um, like let's use the same amount of reps because if I'm building in workouts that are allowing you to progress to overload, then you kind of like screwed yourself on that one because you didn't get much fitter, right? You just kind of went out way too hot. Um, another positive that I would say is like I mentioned before, you'll understand where your capabilities land in each domain if it's programmed accordingly. Um, and that could go from anything from uh, max set of pull-ups or sustainable set of pull-ups in a workout, sustainable toes to bar, row pace, run pace, ruck pace, said whatever you could say um, regarding your sustainability. However, I will say the one downfall where I'll kind of agree over to your side is that if you don't know what that is, you truly don't know what your sustainable pace is, right? So we talk about a lot of times when we um, do max like density sets, we do, hey, 75 toes of bar per time. And we always say like, hey, you shouldn't go out more than a third in your first unbroken set. Well, if an athlete doesn't know what that max set looks like for them, then they'll never pace properly. Um, and so we're gonna work on the assumption that those athletes know their max sets therefore they're able to pace accordingly and then what that does is allows them to build in kind of confidence um, speed into workouts and allows them to succeed oh that's great man all i heard was that uh mine won that's all i heard my point um, no, <laughs> yeah i think the, the i think those last two points we kind of talked about i think are really drive home the idea behind having an individual coach because um, i think it is easy to say you know like, oh, in an ideal world, here's your pace. It's like, well, I mean, if you don't have your max set, if you don't know what the intensity feels like, if you don't know any of that stuff, it's super hard to actually sit there and, and go back to a pacing strategy. Yeah, and that, that's kind of, you know, brings me back to like the overall consideration here for each type of athlete should be based on the athlete, not just blanket prescriptions of pacing. And, you know, in the tactical world, there's been a big switch recently of, of hiring like, you know, football strength conditioning coaches to do tactical athlete training. And so what that typically means is they go to some endurance formula for running or rucking or whatever you pick. And, and they're like, okay, well, I'm going to train you like a middle linebacker and I'm going to give you these um, prescribed pacing things because that's what the endurance formula says. But what they don't realize is, you know, for the tactical athlete, there's uh, all sorts of variables that get a vote. You know, they obviously have to be high level thinkers there's the environmentals, there's the poor nutrition, there's these other things going on. So in training, they can control more of that, but in real life, they need to know their gears more than anything else. And if you're just going off cookie cutter stuff, you know, it's kind of doing a, a, a downfall. And so I can see that when other athletes come to me and they're like, yeah, yeah, we used to do a bunch of pacing work. We used to do a bunch of zone-based training. I'm like, okay, let me see what that looks like. Let me see your last eight weeks of training. And it's kind of funny 
for humans who don't have anything that's like perfectly symmetrical and all of their pacing is perfectly prescribed, like two minutes, 155, 150. <laughs> There's no like at 153 pace. There's no, you know, run at a 603 mile or run, you know, whatever, 13.7 miles or something like that, because that's what it comes down to in the tactical athlete world. Now in the sport world, we obviously know the constraints a lot more. We know what the demands are. We know probably what they're gonna get into for their sport if it's a mixed modal sport. And in the fitness world, obviously a lot of times the pacing is just keeping them training for longevity, not overdoing it, not underdoing it. And so when I think about the different athletes, there has to be changing in my pacing considerations based on each one, not just a cookie cutter, you know, blanket answer for everybody. Yeah, and I think looking at all those um, categories there, I've, when you were saying all that, I kind of thought of ideas that I do for each individual to try and combat the cons um, or the aspects of pacing each of those, right? So I think a fun one to do for the tackle guys is I'll give them a workout and then I just throw them a weird twist in the middle of a workout that you wouldn't expect because I think oftentimes, especially at our gym, you know, we have very high level performing tactical athletes. Um, so it's like if you give them a workout, like rope climbs, row, and wall vaults, like they can get it. They understand it. Um, something I've been trying to do with Joe recently and, and some of my other high-level performing ones is, hey, do a 12-minute AMRAP, and every minute on the minute, two Turkish get-ups. <laughs> Turkish get-ups aren't that hard, but, like, all of a sudden now you go from, if we're doing a squat pattern, hinge pattern, and a pole, like a rope climb, well, now you randomly have to get on a floor, pick up a weight, and do a shoulder stability drill. <laughs> Yeah. and go over the top and it can mess with your breathing and it could understand that hopefully it's teaching them that when they get into these weird situations where if they're rucking and all of a sudden I don't know the pace car goes a little faster or it's humid outside they could understand there's going to be a change in environment um, and sport kind of the same way like it's the idea behind the unknown and the unknowable but we have to be comfortable with our, our pace that we have and our capability at that time and then fitness I always try and tell people you know, you're not, if you're not training for anything, you're training for life, right? And in life, I think there's no time in life unless you're running from a bear that you're doing an all out max effort that's not sustainable. <laughs> and, and so, in the long run, when we look at longevity and health, our body likes to be sustainable and work at that pace because then we start looking into like kind of fuel sources that we're burning and, and what the hormone profile looks like in response to that. Uh, but obviously, I think that's a different uh, podcast topic. Yeah, yeah. Hormone response to the glycolytic system, I think, would be a fun one. Um, but yeah, and so it's just stuff like that that uh, I try to get across to the just general pop fitness um, athletes that I have is just like, hey, we're training for life. We're training to feel good. We're training to, to kind of be here tomorrow and show up and play ball with your kids in the yard. So um, yeah, kind of how I look at it, classifying them. Yeah, I love it, man. And, and you know, the last thing I'll add is is you know, the more data we have, the more prescriptive we can get with our pacing or, or even pull the reins off a little bit. Because sometimes people surprise us with the physiology they have. Someone walks in looking like Hulk and then they've got an amazing engine and you're like, okay, you're, you're not what I thought you were going to have. So let's, let's dial this down some. So if we can do like muscle oxygen monitor, monitoring, we can do all these other testing things to say, yes, we're hitting, we're eliciting the right response or not. That can accelerate the learning curve of pacing. And at the end of the day, while I'm trying to get those physical adaptations from a certain pace or a certain dose response, it has to be the athlete driving that in terms of learning. So if they're going to, you know, I can tell them to go out at a five minute 
um, mile pace or whatever, sometimes they can't hit it. Or for some people that's too slow. And so, you know, I need them to learn that based on what they did the, the days leading up and the days uh, ahead, what they kind of have at the end of the day, I'm trying to teach the athlete with each session, what their body is capable of as well. And so, you know, there's, there's power and pacing on, on making physical changes, but there's also power and pacing on making mental and technical changes for the athlete too. I think uh, something that I've noticed when it comes to pacing that a lot of the athletes don't understand is I think the, um, the harm, not in so much like a long-term effect, I'm talking about in a workout, of just going a little too fast, what it can do to you. Um, I'm sure you, you obviously are familiar probably with the exercise post-oxidation debt where it's like how fast you go and also now you spend the whole time recovering from the oxygen that you didn't have flowing through your body, right? And so oftentimes what I see that is, let's say we're doing 400 meter repeats and I'll have someone do a 125, 124, 120, and then they're like 138, 139. <laughs> and they're like, dude, I don't understand. I just hit a wall every single time. And it's like, people don't understand that like, it is that crucial in my opinion that like, if you go those four seconds faster, like that is a different rate of speed in which you are prepared to clear lactate and oxygenate uh, the lungs and the muscles that are required to run at a certain pace and the next week i'll say hey i don't want you going any faster than the 125 and they'll do every single one at a 125 if they didn't reach that kind of point and i think people if you look at like in a mixed modal setting same thing they're like oh you know it says 30 pull-ups and i could do 20 for sure so i might as well push to the last 10 it's like well what that 10 is going to do to your breathing pattern to your stroke rate if you're doing rowing or any other um, barbell cycling, it can like screw you up like huge. And so um, I think that's oftentimes the conversation I have with athletes, just getting them to understand what that looks like. Um, and oftentimes that requires me putting them through a workout that makes them wish they knew how to pace. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the power in, in a more advanced or elite athlete, you know, like some of our games athletes here right now is they know right where that threshold is, right? You know, so from a scientific standpoint, it's called critical power output. So at some point, that oxygen yeah. coupling and that fuel source stuff is just not going to be able to keep up with what they're doing, their power output. And then, like you said, it's going to be a long recovery to charge that battery. It's just like a car. You can push it pretty hard, but once it redlines, like, you have to wait until it cools back down to start it back up and keep it going, if it even starts back up. And a lot of people forget that. They're, they're, they are a biological machine and if they push past that red line it's not going to come back at a one-to-one -one pace like oh i'll just rest 10 seconds and i'll come back and that's a, just a, a fine tuning of like you were saying on a, on a 120 400 if you drop that by four or five seconds on one interval that is a significant change that's like almost 10 percent change and you know yeah. so like some people will say like oh it's no big deal and it's like no that's like adding if you back squat 200 pounds and that's your max and you add 20 pounds, that's the same thing. You know, no one would make a 20 pound jump right near their max, at least not intelligently. And so, you know, they forget that's that same type of power output thing. But as coaches, when we see that drop off, we're like, hey, right here, this is where you fell off the tipping point. Next week, I want you to come back and instead of going 124, 123, and then falling off, I want you to start out at 126, 125, hold 125 for the rest. Like, oh, but it's slower than my first two. Yeah, but the net gain in your fitness is what we're targeting. 
And so that's yeah. where I think some people are just addicted to the intensity or even the volume. Like some people are like, oh, pacing's boring and, and you're not giving me enough volume. And it's like, well, okay, we're trying to do a very specific thing with your pacing and your, your blending your volume so that you don't overdo it and your recovery currency is too much in debt, but you're also having to be present during training. And I think that's one of the hardest things for people nowadays is shutting off their phone, shutting off the, the distraction and, the, and the, the noise and focusing. And that's hard. Yeah. Breathing, being aware of what your monitor shows, being aware of your pacing and being self-aware enough to say, yeah, it's hot today. I didn't drink enough water today, whatever, and changing it in the moment. That's what's hard work. It's not just doing more workouts. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've experienced that too. Obviously, I've kind of had to go back into kind of role of what I'm doing now. And uh, there's been, definitely been days where it's like my coach will give me a time cap. And I'm like, there's no shot today that that is happening. But I will get the work done at maybe a different pace um, for my sanity, I guess you could say. <laughs> uh, yeah. I hear that, man. Well, that's it. That's all we got for today, folks. So I got, uh, oh. if you have time, I working my way through text messages I get from athletes. And oh. I remember this one. So there's four questions on past podcasts that we've done. Okay. All right. And do a little rapid fire. See, yeah, let's do a rapid fire. Put, put, us, close this thing out. put us on the spot. So uh, this comes from my boy, Cody. Um, okay. So the first one is, um, I'll kind of kick over to you and then I'll, I'll I like I said, I have not seen these. So, um, I looked at them, I responded to them saying, when I get the time, I will respond to you. Um, are there things that better articulate from athlete to coach? What are you looking for in a given workout or over a series of weeks worth of workouts in order to give you a better mind of what the athlete needs? Yeah. So I like, uh, I like what's called cross validation of objective and subjective measures, right? So I've got some athletes that write me a novel. Um, Taylor, if you're listening, love you, mean it. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that's huge. It, it's, it's powerful. It's a lot to sort through, but it's not just, hey, I did X amount of rowing at this pace. That's good, and that does help me see stuff. But when it's cross-validated by, I felt great doing this, my back blew up doing this, or, you know, whatever they feel, some people – during some movements will tell me like, Hey, I get dry mouth doing this thing. I'm like, all right, Hey, let's try switching some BCAs before or whatever, like some little stuff like that. And that's yeah. what really makes the co coach athlete connection better. And then next week when I come back around or next phase, we can specifically target that thing because if they're telling me on, on, you know, squatting and something that challenges their respiratory dynamics, if their lower back blows up, I'm like, okay, We've got a diaphragmatic issue and we've got, you know, a local, um, you know, localized tissue problem that we probably need to focus on next phase. But if they're like, hey, did the workout, went slow, that doesn't help me as much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. The main one for me, um, I like to look for consistency in your efforts, um, good or like a lot or not at all. You know, um, one of the things I look for is, um, how you measure your metrics from a mental standpoint, kind of going off the cross validation thing. Like I know your results. I don't want to know how you feel, but that needs to be consistent. And once I think that's consistent, I think I can work off of that data to improve our cycle that we're on. So what do I mean by that? I have some people that give me their whoop scores and sleep scores every single day. 
And what that allows me to do is now I can sit there and look at their workouts with the intended dose response that I wanted and or results and say, okay, wow, they're sleeping 45% on a whoop recovery, but they're doing great. So that to them is their baseline. But when they drop down to 10%, red flags go up. Similar to that, if um, someone is always giving me their thoughts on their workouts and how they feel and, and do their hydration and they're kind of getting the pacing strategies, um, I could then cross-validate again and kind of see and match that up the results. The ones where it doesn't work for me is when it's like one comment is how they like the workout. The next day it's, hey, I had tacos for lunch. And I, <laughs> just stuff that like doesn't really make sense. Um, and, and then obviously we talk about it all the time assess don't guess so that's why we look forward in our athletes and, and kind of see what they need better working on four to five weeks do some retesting and then get right into it uh what time are we how much time are we, where are we yeah. at right now let's go wrap huh? it up send it all right so the second one is is it easier to get physiological change from one type of athlete towards the other so for example tension limited athlete to get more well-rounded or delivery limited athlete to get more balanced. I think we kind of covered this when we actually talked about those. Um, in my opinion, I would always rather have a tension limited athlete because we can build in aerobic pieces versus someone that can't create tension. It's a lot harder to do. Yeah. And, and I think just, you know, to use the cliche term is strength takes a lifetime to build strength is way more than just like building muscle tissue, whether it's like making each muscle fiber bigger or adding more muscle fiber, that is just one piece of it. It's also nervous system and developing the yep. nervous system and the muscle and all those other things is way more complicated to create that kind of tension as opposed to delivery. Like I can take someone and, and do six to eight weeks of focused delivery work and kind of get them to about 90, 95% of their max potential. Um, and so that's where, if you ask me, if it was like, what do I, what do I wish someone walked in the door with very high strength numbers? Yep. Yeah. And that's something I was going to add to kind of my comment was you have to respect as a coach, you have to respect physiology. Um, and if you're looking to get someone more aerobic and improve their delivery system, theoretically, you can sit them on a treadmill and say, Hey, walk all day, <laughs> right? Like you are going to walk and create a sweat and deliver oxygen versus someone who's trying to build tension and build strength. Like you can only do so many reps and sets in a day before it gets detrimental and, or you're just not recovering. Yep. Um, third one, not Moxie testing. Um, how can you help identify training deficiencies utilizing the Moxie monitor? And do we have the capability at AX to do that? First, yeah, we don't have yeah. the Moxie <laughs> quite yet because the Moxie is pretty damn expensive and it's, it's truly lab yeah. value stuff. So we currently use the Humon um i've tried some other ones in the past but we have you know a couple of human monitors at eax and you know just kind of boiling it down to base level it's measuring the real-time muscle oxygen saturation in your body so if you're doing wall balls or you're running i can strap it to your quad and say when you are at absolute zero of oxygen well it's hard to get there or when you get to the point where more oxygen is being used than is being refueled and so when I see that, I know, okay, we've gotten to the limit, like limiter point, you should probably stop that set. So what it allows you to do is do a much more focused training session and you can do localized tissue delivery things with it or systemic ones and say, yep, we hit the right dose of pacing because you held right at threshold for a certain period of time or sometimes we wanna go above threshold for a certain period of time and then give you a really long recovery. 
but that's the downfalls of pacing I talked about earlier, where if I just give you a pace and I don't really know what's going on inside the muscle with delivery, with oxygen and everything else real time, I'm taking my best guess and I can kind of get in that ballpark, but, but the Moxie monitors or the human monitors really help me dial that in. Yeah, exactly. Dials us in, allows us to truly know what that is, no matter what you feel. Alan's a good example of that. We have Alan who is a high level games athlete. Um, he will feel very tired, but on a monitor, Simon, for right now, or we would ever get some moxies, he is close to drained of oxygen out of the muscle. Yeah. Uh, but that's an example of an advanced athlete being able to push super, super far. Um, one quick note I also want to add on to everything you said. It's, obvious, it's different than a pulse ox. So don't put a pulse ox on your finger and think it's the same thing. It's not. <laughs> yeah. uh, Pulse ox got like yeah. a two, three minute lag and it's just measuring blood oxygen saturation, not tissue. Correct. Correct. Last one here. Um, is there validity behind a fighting weight for certain um, selection events? I've had quote unquote healthcare professionals and nutritionists say that the body um, has a given frame. It could hold as much weight um, or muscle before you become a detriment and prone to injury. Case in point, the third. Um, I'll leave out that part. Nutritionist told me, based off my measurements, I need to lose weight to prevent overuse injury while training up for selection. I feel better than ever at my certain weight. Hearing you and Chris talk about tactical athletes that are over 200 pounds made me think of this question. Um, first of all, I think as a bigger guy, I deserve the first, <laughs> first rights at this question. Um, I do think, to an extent, there is validity behind a fighting weight but I think it is specific to the athlete and not a, a number, right? Like we have sent people to the law, uh, to certain selections that are 245 pounds, 250 pounds. We sent people that are 170 and too lean. We sent people that are 170 and stocky and made it. Um, so I think there is validity behind saying there's a fighting weight. It is just different for everyone. Um, and what that comes down to is when we measure kind of, um, say we're rucking we're measuring our kind of foot poundage per step um obviously if you cannot handle that kind of load through previous training uh, then you are possibly at a higher risk for injury if you are technically overweight um, but there's no magic number in terms of oh you got to be under 190 pounds or you're going to get injured yeah and i think that's where um you know maybe that nutritionist not quite understanding the demands that are out there and maybe some of the specific things that are going on. And like, in theory, that sounds true. Like, okay, if I'm not gonna, if I can have a lighter, more agile, faster person, that's great. But if this is functional mass and this person has, has trained to oxygenate that well and do some other things um, that make sure it's not just beefy beefcake muscle and it's not just, you know, uh, or it's not fat, then that's actually a benefit. And so what I mean by that is when I am putting on a rucksack on, that is if I'm 150 pounds and my rucksack is 50 pounds, I am now moving one third of my absolute body weight. If I put a 50 pound rucksack on and I'm 250 pounds, I'm now moving 20% of my body weight. So yes, I do have some more weight in there. It kind of equates, but as we know from skeletal muscle and utilization and stuff, that's not quite a one-to-one, -one. a bigger person, with a rucksack on that's a fraction of their body weight just moves easier they're not changing their diaphragmatic pattern they're not doing a lot of things that would cost them energy quote unquote but the flip side of that is is sort of true 
are you going to find a one-to-one -one correlation at people above 200 pounds do worse over there? No, not at all. I know plenty of athletes yeah. that are 6'6", 260 and, and move extremely well. But each step with the ruck on for a tactical athlete when you're running can be five to seven times your, your body weight crashing down on your knees and ankles. So yeah, it can come at a cost of tissue. But if you build the tissue tolerance early, if you build the delivery to support that athlete, a lot of times those athletes subjectively report an easier time because they're not going on a max effort walk every day because yeah. they have more strength. And so that's the, the benefit of it. And it's, it's, I hate to break it to the nutrition. It's not driven by nutrition. It's driven by their training plan and what their objective results are. And so if that yeah, that's what I was gonna... pounds and can move, sorry, nutritionist, I don't, I don't care about six pack abs and what your DEXA scan says. I care about how they perform. Yep. And that was something I was just going to add it, 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 that your quote unquote fighting weight is something that can be found kind of through training. Um, if you're going to a selection that requires you to walk 40 plus miles, um, you probably it shouldn't be your first time walking at selection. So hopefully, you know, months and months out, you're putting that. Um, and that's what we talked about in an earlier episode. There is that risk when we start to get to these high, high end events of injury. But oftentimes that could be one of it, right? Like you're seeing what weight that is that you can walk comfortably. You know, maybe part of that training cycle for four weeks, you're at 220 um, and you're like, shit, man, I don't feel that good. And all of a sudden you go down to 210 and you're like, hey, ruck still feels light, but my joints are feeling a lot better in these long ruck, uh, ruck marches. That's something you can explore in training and just kind of keep for in your back pocket when you get ready to go. Because there is something as being too lean as well. You won't have that extra fuel and an extra kind of recovery to get you through. Yeah, that's what I was going to get at, man, is, is there is a functional reserve range. Like, you got to have some buffer in there so that three weeks into an event, after daily grinds and beatdowns and suboptimal nutrition, you've still got some reserves and you didn't come in at your quote-unquote fighting weight, which means you've got nothing to lose. Like, as soon as you start losing weight, you're malnourished. You now have, like, you're breaking down muscle to perform as opposed to, like, fat stores. So, there's value in it. And then the same thing, like if you have a little bit more mass around your joints, that's protective tissue if done correctly and if built correct. And so, you know, that's where I would say like, you know, a lot of times nutritionists try and make people racehorses when sometimes we just need more Viking, someone that can grind and, and get through it and it's not pretty. Um, but that's exactly what a selection event is looking for. It's not looking for, for the studs that, you know, can jump on the cover of men's fitness one day but they can't perform in the woods the next. So it's a balance. Yep. That's uh, kind of all he, he sent me. So figured I'd throw that in there at the end, kept try and catch us off guard for something. There you go. I like it. Well, you know, we always love feedback from athletes and, and anytime we can put them in here, uh, we'd love to do it. As always, guys, if you're listening to this, you have questions, hit Jeremy or I up. We'd love to, to use that to drive some of the podcast episodes. Hope you got a lot out of today. The great pacing debate. Once again, just to summarize, like we both support pacing, right time, right place, right athlete, uh, based on what the athlete needs, not what on the coach wants. And then that's how we kind of build a lot of our programs. If you're interested in jumping on a program, also reach out to us. We'd love to have you. We've got a little bit of a waiting list, but we're moving through it quickly. So Jeremy, thanks again for joining me, my man. Great talk as always. Um, to the audience out there, as always, we just want to remind you to get better every day. Thank you.